the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us online, danproftshow.com, so you can get the podcasts as well as at Spotify and iTunes and all the customary places uh, on social media, at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter, also at Dan Prof. Uh, we uh, begin on this program with President Trump's Sunday evening briefing of the nation, his, he and his uh, coronavirus task force. There were at least four important things that uh, Trump dealt with last night and uh, the way he dealt with them. Uh, two of them start here two of them uh one was resisting the political pressure he's under and there's no question he is under significant political pressure it's been bubbling below the surface for most of last week it started to appear ab- uh, above the surface with reports like in rolling stone that there was uh, suggestions within doj for suspension of habeas corpus which is crazy but uh, in addition to that, uh, the more of the pressure coming with eight states and a quarter of the population in shutdown, that the president initiate a two-week national shutdown. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Chad Wolf, Homeland Security Secretary, was on with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday morning, and he telegraphed what the president wouldn't do and why. Is the president considering a full shutdown of the country for a period of time, sir? Not not at this time. Uh, the, the president, again, through the vice president and the task force has been very aggressive and very forward leaning and providing a number of guidance, a number of information to the American public. We have the 15 days to slow the spread. So there's a number of measures that we're asking the American public to take. Uh, you will see that there's been another of governors, particularly in New York and California, that have taken the extra step uh, and imposed some additional strict measures. And we certainly agree with those measures. There's going to be certain communities that have uh, widespread community transmission that need to take more aggressive measures than perhaps other communities. So, again, we're working with them. We're working with the state and local and the governors to do that. Uh, and we continue to uh, encourage them to take those aggressive measures. That's right. Eight states have and 42 have not. Right. In addition to the uh, five territories and so forth and the District of Columbia. But uh, the point is, this outbreak is proceeding markedly different, differently in different states. In point of fact, 60 percent of U.S. states have fewer than 200 cases as of Monday. Almost half have fewer than 100 cases. You have. New York state at north of 16,000. And then even those other states that got uh, specific mention and specific aid, and we'll get to them. And the National Guard scrambled with uh, the Fed picking up the tab, meaning adding California and Washington state to New York state. I mean, you drop down all the way to under 2,000 cases from 
the high of New York to California and Washington State. So, yeah, different responses in this federalist system, which Mike Pence had to explain to the press, uh, the system in which we live, under which we live. Uh, it is, so that's one, restraining himself from the hysteria of national two-week lockdown, including coming from, you know, erstwhile allies of the president like Steve Bannon. It's wrong. No basis for it. Number two, his resistance to the calls for nationalization of businesses. And this was where Peter Navarro was important in delineating for the nation what the president had effectively unleashed when he invoked the Defense Production Act, Navarro explained. The Defense Production Act in this context um, has two primary functions. One is mobilization of the industrial base, in this case the public health industrial base, and the other is allocation of resources both from the supply chain to the manufacturers and from the manufacturers to the end users such as the healthcare professionals. Now, what we're seeing on a purely voluntary basis based on the leadership of this administration, we're seeing the greatest mobilization of the industrial base since World War II. So there's three components to the DFA, the defense, uh, the uh, DPA, excuse me, Defense Production Act. There is the repurposing. There is, you know, for example, GM uh, making ventilators. There is the building up of capabilities, and then there's the allocation of resources. So uh, why not nationalize industries, as de Blasio and others have called for, as was asked of the president again last night by one of the members of the D.C. press corps? Navarro essentially explained it in his remarks, and then President Trump did it in Q&A, but first Peter Navarro. The Defense Production Act, sir, has given me quiet leverage. When you have a strong leader, you can take a light hand initially. And so what we've seen with this outpouring of, of, of volunteers from private enterprise, we're, we're getting what we need without, without putting uh, the, the heavy hand of government down. There will be possibly cases down the road, and, and the manufacturers have actually asked me and alerted me this, where some places in the supply chain, they may have problems that the White House will have to break through using the Defense Production Act. We won't hesitate to do that. Uh, Navarro's essential point, though, my takeaway, and we'll hear from the president just in a, in a moment, why use force to assume control of industries and businesses the government has no idea how to operate, when you're getting preemptive cooperation from those industries and businesses, the Honeywells and the three M's and the GM's. And even I talked about one example in Chicago on Friday, Covell uh, uh, distillery in Chicago, other distilleries converting production of alcohol, their facilities from production of alcohol to production of hand sanitizer. If you're getting preemptive cooperation, why would you impose your will through government force? And then do what? You're going to do a better job than the operators of these facilities? Doubtful. Uh, President Trump accentuating the point in Q&A. You know, we're a country not based on nationalizing our business. Uh, uh, call a person over in Venezuela. Ask them, how did nationalization of their businesses work out? Not too well. 
the concept of nationalizing our business is not a good concept. But I'll, I'll tell you why. As Peter said, we may have to use it someplace along the chain, but we're getting calls. Here's the beauty of it. If we go out and we want, let's say, masks, we don't know who to call on masks. But Haynes, who makes things of cotton, various elements, lots of things, it's a great company, they called us and they said, we're going to make millions of masks. This is one example, but thank goodness you have somebody in the Oval Office who's actually had to be bottom line sensitive at some points in his life. And uh, that distinguishes him from most of the politicians, including those uh, on the Hill trying to cobble together this uh, multi-trillion dollar bailout slash stimulus package. So those are the two of the four important things. Resisting the political pressure to do a two-week national shutdown, letting the states be the laboratories of democracy uh, based on the uh, markedly different scale of outbreak state by state. Number two, rejecting calls for nationalization when you've got preemptive cooperation. Uh, And number three, giving lie to the inane reporting last week. The governors are on their own. Governors are on their own. That's what he said. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. And Pence had to explain this, as I referenced a bit earlier in our discussion. No, we have federal support, state management, local execution. That's how it works. That's how the emergency response works. And that's how it's been working. And so President Trump announced yesterday at the outset of his remarks at Sunday night's briefing that uh, California, Washington State, New York State uh, are going to get the resources that they need from the federal government, that they've requested from the federal government to quell uh, the scale of their outbreak, as well as to treat those who are infected and need hospitalization, President Trump announced. Through FEMA, the federal government will be funding 100 percent of the cost of deploying National Guard units to carry out approved missions to stop the virus while those governors remain in command. So the governors locally are going to be uh, in command and uh, will be uh, following them. And we hope they can do the job. And I think they will. And go- and uh, President Trump. you know, So the governors, states managing. Locals implementing federal supporting state managing locals implementing. Well, when we come back, I want to deal with still this third important thing that uh, President Trump did and also get to the fourth important thing that Trump did at his Sunday night briefing uh, on a go-for basis, which uh, then augmented with uh, updated information today. Back with more on this topic and the the four prongs of uh, Trump's Sunday night briefing right after seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show picking up on our discussion about the main takeaways from president trump's briefing on Sunday night, talked about the resistance to institute a two-week national shutdown, the resistance to nationalization of industry. The third was his specific response to California and New York and Washington state, where the outbreaks have been the most substantial, states that represent uh, more than 50 percent of total deaths 
to this point. Before the break, you heard President Trump on the uh, scrambling of the National Guard and that the federal government will pick up the cost while the governors will manage the deployment. Uh, Trump also got into specifics with respect to the supplies that are being delivered to those uh, most severely impacted states. We have large quantities of medical equipment and supplies on the way based on all of this to those states, including respirators, surgical masks and gowns, face shields, coveralls and gloves with large quantities already delivered to Washington and to New York. In addition to large quantities of supplies, I've also directed FEMA to supply the following four large federal medical stations with 1000 beds for New York, eight large federal medical stations with 2000 beds for California and three large federal medical stations and four small federal medical stations with 1,000 beds for the state of Washington, the governors know. The supplies en route to California and New York will be delivered within the next 48 hours. In addition, the Naval Hospital ship, the USNS Mercy, it's an incredible ship. These two ships are incredible, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, will be deployed to Los Angeles to add emergency surge medical capacity, and they have a tremendous capacity. They are really something. President Trump's FEMA director, uh, Peter Gaynor, took to the podium and essentially provided more backing for what uh, President Trump was describing in detail. We have medical supplies en route to these states, including respirators, surgical masks, gowns, face shield, coveralls, gloves, with quantities already delivered uh, to both Washington, New York, and California. And we anticipate additional supplies uh, to be delivered uh, within the next 42 hours to all these states. Uh, importantly, Gaynor went beyond the three states to just remind the nation and all the governors out there that uh, FEMA is your clearinghouse for all requests and information flow. All 50 states, the District of Columbia, five territories, and two tribes are working directly with FEMA under the Nationwide Emergency Declaration for COVID-19. We continue to respond to hundreds of requests from governors uh, across the country and filling all their critical needs. All right. So that's the uh, the third thing, the response specifically to California, Washington State, New York State, particularly with respect to those supplies and then Gainer's more global statements about the entire 50 states and associated territories that dovetails to the fourth thing, which is the testing as well as the developments on the antiviral front, in addition to the supplies. Kind of categorize those three, because all three were tackled. And let's start with the antivirals, and then we'll loop in Pence on testing. President Trump talking about the clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine that are supposed to start Tuesday in New York State. And I was actually surprised and disappointed there weren't follow-up questions about antiviral treatments from the press corps, because... Of course, we know of, in addition to uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is uh, the anti-malarial drug that's been much talked about in the last several days, we have remdesivir, which was the drug used in those two Washington state cases that seemed to have immediate impact and save the lives of two people that were severely ill from COVID-19. And then there's also other treatments that are being discussed in public forums, intravenous vitamin C treatments and, and the like. It just would be interesting to get uh, the medical reaction and what is moving through clinical trials for you know reapplication like the anti-malarial drug as well as for actual, well, to some extent, 
from Demisvir would be reapplication, too, because it was originally conceived as a drug to treat Ebola back during that crisis and has shown promise as a drug to treat COVID-19. Be nice to get some of those details and some of those timelines about what may be coming online when President Trump on the antivirals. We continue to accelerate the development of safe and effective vaccines. We're also aggressively investigating a number of antiviral therapies and treatments to determine their potential in reducing the severity and duration of the symptoms. And you know how I feel because how I feel is on Tuesday, they're going to be starting it on Tuesday morning. And uh, we're going to have uh, some medications delivered that we're going to see if they work. They certainly are effective in other ways, and uh, they they are safe from the standpoint is that they're not they're not killing people. We're not going to have that. So uh, a lot of great things have been happening in that regard. And then Mike Pence uh, took up the matter of testing, giving us a status on where testing stands and sort of the infection rate based on uh, a much more substantial body of test results than we had uh, just a few days ago and uh, more coming online as that uh, backlog is going to be cleaned up in the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, In addition to that, Dr. Scott Gottlieb writing in the Wall Street Journal, Trump's former FDA FDA director, that uh, by week's end, government should be in the position to uh, be moving towards 75,000 tests a day. So then you're really going to start to have the, uh, the picture clear up Uh, and the sort of sample size that can inform models that can really give you a better handle on the trajectory of this spread. But Pence on uh, testing to to date as of Sunday night. At this uh, day's reporting, 254,000 Americans have been tested and received results in coronavirus tests, with uh, slightly more than than 30,000 actually testing positive. There's a bit of an encouraging word in that for every American. Remember, everyone that's being tested now, with the exception of our healthcare workers, are people that have symptoms that make them think they may have the coronavirus. And as our numbers come in consistently, because the 254,000 does not include all the local hospitals or all the local labs in our states, it's working out to be about one in 10 Americans who've been tested who thought they had coronavirus actually had it. Nine out of 10 did not. Hmm. That's a rather remarkable uh, a number. The other thing it calls into question, though, is the, the issue we've discussed in this show before, which is should we be doing representative sampling so we get a representative sample of the population as opposed to just those self-identifying, the so-called worried well, at least 90 percent of them. Uh, Pence also uh, made mention of innovation on the testing front, the uh, possibility of a new test coming online with 45-minute turnaround. We talked last week, Oxford across the pond uh, had been uh, referencing a test that they developed that uh, had 30 minute turnaround. So anyway, the idea that uh, testing could be more ubiquitous with quicker result turnarounds than we've enjoyed up to this point. I'm pleased to report that yesterday the FDA approved an emergency authorization on a new test that should be in production by the end of March. Uh, It actually would be a coronavirus test, the results of which come back in 45 minutes. And we're also working, the FDA is working with manufacturers around the country to come up with even faster, more innovative tests. And as we told our governors in several calls this week, governors and state health officials should simply contact FEMA for the latest information on testing solutions. 
If we haven't yet flattened the curve when it comes to infections after last after Sunday night's last night's uh, press briefing and those four areas that uh, the Trump team tackled, I thought very effectively, we should have at least flattened the curve on some of the hysteria. This is the damp option. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Wall Street Journal opining today about the uh, economy's health. The window for providing liquidity to stressed businesses is closing faster than many realize, I'd say. Markets face another tumultuous week with many industries hard-pressed to find financing. Real estate investment trusts with investments in shopping malls that have few customers as people stay home are one problem to watch. Non-bank financial institutions are another. There's a liquidity crunch is what uh, the journal is suggesting. And as uh, I've been suggesting on this show for the better part of a week, uh, there is a lack of alacrity if the goal is to keep people employed and keep businesses open, SBA loans, low interest SBA loans are not enough or perhaps even the right instrument. That's my view. Uh, let's get uh, another's views on a range of proposals being debated, including on the Hill. Pleased to be joined by Josh Gottbaum. He is a guest scholar in the Economic Studies Program. He's affiliated with the Brookings Retirement Security Project and chair of the Maryland Small Business Retirement Security Board. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to do it, Dan. How are you doing? Good. And so um, give us uh, what you like and, and don't like, what you think would be effective and is needed and what is not from what is being bandied about in the Senate at present. I think overall the Senate is trying to do the right thing, and they're trying to hustle uh, both sides. The um, They have – part of the issue is that we're on completely uncharted territory, okay? In other words, you remember we went through that incredible financial crisis in 2008, 2009, et cetera. Well, this one, is, this one is actually very different because this is one where we are intentionally, in order to save lives, are telling businesses all across the country, close down, mm-hmm. don't go to work, et cetera. And so instead of starting with financial institutions in 2008 and making sure they had money uh, and knowing that if they had money, they could float most of the other businesses. Essentially, the challenge now is how do you get money to a whole bunch of businesses and to a whole bunch of people in very different situations all across the country? And so what what the Senate and the House, to be fair, what they are trying to do, but it's new and different for them is they're trying about five different approaches. And let me just tick them off, and then we can go back and talk about them. One is they they want businesses to have enough money to keep people employed. So that means giving money to businesses. There are obviously ways to do it. You can use the existing credit system. You can use government credit. You can use government grants, et cetera. But The largest debate right now is a debate over how and how quickly and with what strings attached can we give money to businesses so that they will keep people employed. Second issue is there are a bunch of people who aren't working, 
but who still got to pay rent. And so they are going to send checks. Basically, they're gonna, it's going to be the Internal Revenue Service working in reverse. It's like they're sending refunds. They're going to send checks to everyone. Now, you can say, and you would be right, wait a minute, aren't some people more needy than others? Uh, uh, you know, some people are well off and don't need the checks, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you'd be right, but since right now we are in major shutdown of the economy, they are going for speed over fairness and accuracy. And most of us uh, think that that's the right result. It, like you, I have a mixed background. I um, worked in business for most of my life, and, and now I hang out in Washington, D.C. and try to and hope that things aren't done too dumb. Um, and um, so first thing is you've got to get money to businesses. Second of all, you've got to get money to people in general. Third, you know that you are going to have to um, – that people are going to be hit differentially. In other words, right now, for example, this week, most people think more people are unemployed and more people will file for employment than has been true than in history, or at least in the last generation or two. Several million people are going to apply for unemployment. Now, is the unemployment system ready for them? No. Does the unemployment system have enough money for them? No. Does the unemployment system, was it designed to handle a large fraction of the country all at once? No, it wasn't. So another piece of this, what, what they're going to do in Washington, which I hope they will decide to do today, and they're making noises like they will, uh, is they're going to beef up the unemployment insurance system so that people have money to do that. I want to pick up the other two uh, of the of the remain the other remaining two of the five things they're trying to do and then get into a couple of them a little bit uh, more deeply with josh gottbaum guest scholar uh, he is with uh, affiliated with the brookings retirement security project as well as chair of the maryland small business retirement security board more with mr gottbaum right after this exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's dan prof and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Josh Gottbaum. He is a guest scholar in the Economic Studies Program, affiliated with the Brookings Retirement Security Project. He is chair of the Maryland Small Business Retirement Security Board as well. We were talking about the multi-pronged approach that uh, members of Congress are trying to take, particularly under the Senate Republican proposal uh, for bailout slash stimulus. Josh, let's pick it up. You were you you mentioned uh, uh, keeping people uh, employed, keeping doors open. You uh, were you left off with um, the 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 money through checks, sending right up the unemployment system, right? Give us Putting the other money two. into our health care system because it's going to be overwhelmed. You know that, mm-hmm. et cetera. And some money for state and local governments because a lot of health care in America is paid for in a joint federal-state program, Medicaid. Yeah. And uh, and basically that, that program, like all health programs, is going to get stressed. So those are kind of the major prongs. All of them except uh, the unemployment insurance were in the Republican proposal that, that Senator McConnell made on Thursday afternoon. The unemployment insurance piece was added at the Democrats' suggestion, 
because they said a single check of $1,000 is not going to last if you are long-term unemployed. And the Republicans have the Republicans have agreed. Now they are still arguing over a couple of points, and I think it's worth talking about what those what those points are. But the most important message is it seems pretty clear to everyone in Washington D.C. that they need to get to an agreement, and they need to get to an agreement within days. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted good to go uh, back to the idea of uh, you know pe- getting people cash right to continue to survive to individuals. Well, what about uh, also including a relaxation of some regulations that would provide people access to their own cash? For example, eliminating the early withdrawal penalty for for IRAs as well as and this was uh, proposed by uh, economists at the Mercatus Center. Uh, giving banks more discretion to make home equity loans and refinance mortgages? Um, I think right now what you'll discover is that there is an overwhelming desire to not let government stand in the way of getting people their own money. So one of the things that the Federal Reserve has done is, and, and the Federal Reserve has been working flat out, they have uh, I mean, they, they announced another program this morning that said it looks like the Treasury markets may or may not, that people may not think the Treasury markets are liquid. So we in the Federal Reserve are just going to buy securities to make sure that there is always a market so that people always have credit. They've also said to the financial institutions that they oversee that this is a time to be generous with credit. So they are trying. As to the question of whether or not we should uh, we should allow people to take money out of their retirement accounts, uh, this will appall a very few of my friends in the retirement community. But the answer is is hell yes, of course we should allow it. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right now, the way I think about this personally is, it's really important to save for retirement. I spend a lot of time working on making it easier for people to save for retirement. But right now, if people don't have money, they will do dumb things like try to go back to work and spread the virus. And so right now, what I want is for people to be able to take care of themselves, pay the rent, cover themselves so that they can live long enough to have a retirement. Right. And if that means, by the way, that we need to adjust retirement ages as a result of this in terms of Social Security access or your means test with adjusting retirement ages, then, you know, maybe this starts to preempt or to, to prompt, excuse me, uh, policy changes that uh, arguably long overdue. Uh, speaking of dumb things, I wanted to get your uh, take. Can, can, I, can, I, can I push back for a second on that one? OK, sure. Sure. And, and um, there are lots of people who think the way you do, but. I, I haven't personally. I have a different view, and the part of the reason is the cataclysm we're going through right now. In other words, we've always said to people, Social Security is um, a base, and you should save more above it, right? Mm-hmm. But right now, because of this cataclysm, millions of people who have money in their retirement accounts, through no fault of their own, they have 25% or a third less today. And so my view of this is, this is not the time to say. And by the way, we're cutting back on your Social Security benefits. No, I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that now would be the time to have that conversation. But I mean, in, just in terms of the the larger 
conversations about um, about huge government run enterprises like Social Security, you know, coming out of this, coming out of this, it may prompt a conversation down the road about uh, how we save for retirement in this country and the government's role in that. That was my that was my point. Oh, um my view is that's a discussion which we are guaranteedly going to have. Yeah. But right now, frankly, I think this is one of those times when we actually need more government. For example, and this is not something I wrote about in, in the in the Brookings in the Brookings piece, but uh, I used to be an assistant secretary of defense in the part of defense that dealt with the defense industry, and one of the controversies in Washington now, which on which people are divided, is should the federal government unleashed its authority, which is that it has had for decades but hasn't used for decades, to tell businesses, we need you to make ventilators and we need you to make masks. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people, a lot of my brethren in, in the economics profession and plenty of my friends in the business community who hate that idea. But I think this is a case now in which it ought to be considered because we have a whole bunch of states scrambling for those things and no central clearinghouse. And so I, I think this is a time in which we actually want the government to be more active rather than less government. I mean, this is everybody admits this. This is a war, right? In war, um, and, and I have plenty of libertarian friends, yeah. the one exception to the basic... Uh, precept of libertarianism, which is you want government to be as small as possible, is you do want government to do national defense. And I think what's going on now is national defense. Josh Gottbaum, guest scholar at the Economic Studies Program that's affiliated with Brookings Retirement Security Project, also chair of the Maryland Small Business Retirement Security Board. Josh, uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll definitely have you back. Appreciate it. Great. Take care, Dan. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We need um, some levity in these times, too. And golly gee, I'm so glad the press corps hasn't been asking Andrew Cuomo follow-up questions about the New York City Department of Health's sex and coronavirus disease guidelines. Yeah. Uh, How can you have sex? Here are some tips for how to enjoy sex to avoid spreading COVID-19. Um, have sex with people close to you. Thank you. You are your safest sex partner. I'll let you figure out what that means. Um, but, uh, that doesn't mean by the way that you shouldn't wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before and after you being with you. Literally, this is what they, the uh, next safest partner is someone you live with. Right. Um, they make no distinction between uh, blood relatives and non-blood relatives either, which is noteworthy. Yes. 
Having close contact with only a small circle of people helps prevent spreading COVID-19. That includes sex. Again, just in case you thought the American public hadn't been infantilized. Number uh, third bullet point under have sex with people close to you. That header. Got to break that down. That is not self-explanatory. You should avoid close contact, including sex with anyone outside your household. If you do have sex with others, have as few partners as possible. That's probably sound advice generally, uh, even absent a pandemic. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Fourth, if you usually meet this, this sounds like a Jeff Foxworthy routine. If you usually meet your sex partners online or make a living by having sex, consider taking a break from in-person dates, video dates, sexting or chat rooms may be options for you. Right. This is from a a city that is moving to legalize prostitution pre-pandemic. And then they also get into, I I kid you not, guidelines of being careful during the act itself. And I'm not just talking about kissing. Uh, And and again, uh, let's just close that out with uh, washing up before and after is more important than ever. It's important post-pandemic, though, too. It was important pre-pandemic. It's going to be important post-pandemic. Thank you so much, New York City Department of Health, these essential employees. And this is the Dan Proctor. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us online, Dan Proft. Show.com is where you find a podcast of the program, list of uh, affiliates where you can listen. Also on social media at Dan Prof Show. The uh, D.C. press corps wasn't so antagonistic toward President Trump and his team during the Sunday night briefing, but uh, that doesn't mean the antagonism has subsided all that much, at least not from the usual suspects. One of them, perhaps at the top of the list, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, who uh, made this call over the weekend. You know, that Sunday night briefing you watch where you got value added information from your political leaders and the professionals whose expertise they're relying on about testing, about uh, the uh, financial aid packages, about antiviral therapies, about uh, the aid going to California and Washington State and New York State, about all those things. They shouldn't be televised anymore, says Rachel Maddow. I mean, there may be other people in the federal government who are saying things that are true, but these daily briefings from the White House are a litany of things from the president that would be awesome if they were true, if they were happening, but they're not. And so the sooner we come to terms with that, I think the better for all of us. If it were up to me and it's not, 
I would stop putting those briefings on live TV, not out of spite, but because it's misinformation. If the president does end up saying anything true, you can run it as tape. But if he keeps lying like he has been every day on stuff this important, we should, all of us, should stop broadcasting it. Honestly, it's going to cost lives. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Daniel Davidson. He's a senior contributor at The Federalist, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly as well. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, Rachel Maddow, she doesn't do things out of spite. It's only in the interest of preserving human life, as you know. Your reaction to the calls to to uh, black out President uh, Trump's briefings, as well as, you know, to, I guess, do a better job holding him to account for being uh, 100 percent accurate. It's, it's absurd, but it's not surprising. Just think about what the media has done over the past year and a half, two years. You had the Russia collusion hoax. You had the Kavanaugh hearings. You had the Mueller report. Then you had impeachment. And now you have this. And so through all of those things, we saw the media consistently play a partisan role, an anti-Trump role, uh, applying analysis and standards and a posture toward the administration that they have never applied to any other administration, Republican or Democrat. And so it's not surprising that when we have a big crisis like this, that the attitude of the media is to make it all about Trump and to make it all about attacking Trump and criticizing Trump rather than actually talk about the crisis itself. You had uh, similar instances during the Obama administration when there was some, some sort of a crisis or some sort of a foreign policy emergency. The media were quick to shut down criticism of the Obama administration, say, oh, this is a crisis. Uh, we don't need to be criticizing the administration right now and trying to score political talking points. The media was doing that for the Obama administration. Now it's the opposite. Uh, and, and so it's no surprise to see this sort of thing, and we should expect more of it. Well, and uh, so in addition to that and the media coverage, which, as you say, is built into the price. So is there, you know, wild ignorance with respect to how our free society is structured? So, for example, on Sunday night, Mike Pence had to remind them how our federalist system works yet again. Uh, and they were reminded in many different ways. They were re- reminded in terms of FEMA, how FEMA acts as a clearinghouse. They were reminded that uh, state or the federal government provides support. States provide governance and localities provide the execution. And uh, so all the reporting last week about governors, you're on your own. Well, ask three Democrat governors named Cuomo, Newsom and Inslee if they feel on their own after what President Trump authorized and announced on Sunday night. Yeah, exactly. It betrays, as you say, a deep ignorance of of what federalism is and, and how it's supposed to work. And we see this a lot when there's a crisis or an emergency. Uh, you know, it, to some extent, we saw it during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, you know, the federal government is always going to be slow to respond because it's big. Uh, it's 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 bureaucratic. It's top heavy. It's slow, but it has tremendous resources. And so the the, the role of the federal government in emergency is to is to support uh, and buttress the local authorities as needed. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's what we're seeing here. The system is is in terms of federalism is working the way it's supposed to work. Governors and mayors are the ones who should be making decisions on the ground about what's needed in their communities. Uh, and to the extent they need assistance from the federal government and they need those that larger pool of resources, then, then that comes into play. But the federal government can't, you know, uh, these federal agencies are just not equipped to sort of govern nationally or, or promulgate national policies uh, in response to a really fast-changing situation. And so you've seen a very different response 
around the country based on different conditions, which is what we should expect. There shouldn't be any hand wringing over that. And the other it thing, the greatest media understood it. Yeah, and the other thing too. I mean, uh, as President Trump recounted, and I didn't hear any media pushback. Uh, providing transparency, providing media access to this call he had with the governors uh, and the conversations he's had. Now he's had some sniping back and forth with my home state governor, uh, J.B. Pritzker, because Pritzker is sniping in the direction of the federal government, and so is the mayor of Chicago. But but he largely hasn't taken the bait. He didn't take the bait when Bill de Blasio excoriated him on Meet the Press. He was asked about Bill de Blasio on Sunday night, he said, you know, it's a tough situation. He's I think he's doing a good job. I think he's trying. It's for for all of the concern about making this partisan. It's Trump who seems to be rising above partisanship and focusing on the productive conversations he's having with people while the media uh, and uh, uh, just a couple of politicians, like, of course, those in Illinois, are trying to score political points. Yeah. And, and you see a big contrast with other Democrats like New York Governor Cuomo who who is that seems to get uh, uh, what the situation calls for that this is time to put partisanship aside and whatever differences he has with Donald Trump to put that aside and actually work with the administration and you see that and I think it actually it it, it, it looks good you know and and it makes it makes Governor Cuomo seem competent and 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 reasonable and rational uh, and and concerned about uh, the situation. Uh, on its own terms, and 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 it makes him seem like he understands what his role is in this, which is to set politics aside and work with uh, his partners in the federal government. That's what everyone has to do right now. And to the extent, you know, you see a huge contrast with Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's sort of buffoonishly trying to uh, score political points every time he goes on TV. It's really out of sync with, I think, the mood of the country and, and with what people want to see from their political leaders right now, well, especially right now. Right. And it also puts de Blasio sort of at odds with Cuomo to Democrats. And, and wait yep. a second, all those resources that Trump is scrambling for New York State, well, that necessarily includes New York City. So, you know, the, the, it's yeah. it, it, Cuomo doesn't have a beef, but de Blasio does. It's sort of hard to square that. Yeah, it makes de Blasio look petulant and childish and immature, and it makes it also seem like he doesn't really understand the stakes here um, uh, the, the, way, the way Governor Cuomo does and the way the Trump administration does. Now, this is not to say that every pronouncement from the Trump administration has been without concern uh, or, or generating concern, at least concerns me. Uh, President Trump last week talking about, uh, about the possibility of taking equity state and companies that are provided taxpayer money. Don't like that. Uh, though, again, that was a reversal from uh, that was he reversed that effectively on Sunday night by rejecting the call for nationalization of particular businesses or industries. Right. But also the report out Rolling Stone had it too, uh, uh, emanating from Department of Justice, uh, some thoughts about suspending habeas corpus. You have Cornell law professors advocating for that as well. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to go down these roads either. And so, you know, vigilance is required across the board, including with respect to the Trump administration. Absolutely. Uh, you know, now more than ever is the time for uh, everybody to be concerned about preserving civil liberties, uh, to be concerned about um, preserving our free market economy so that when this is over, we can we can actually rebuild you know, the, the coronavirus is it's almost like there's three different crises. There's the, the coronavirus itself, the, 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 the disease. And what do we do about that? And, and how do we fight it? And, and how do we develop a cure? And what do we do in the meantime? Then there's the crisis of, of 
of the economy, uh, you know, how do we how do, how do we respond in a way that doesn't drive us into an economic depression, a global economic depression, uh, and bankrupt future generations and, and ruin millions of, of people's livelihoods? And then the third one is crisis of a, a constitutional crisis or, yeah. or a civil liberties crisis. How do we do these things and respond to the virus medically uh, and socially, and how do we respond economically in a way that preserves our basic constitutional republic, uh, in a way that preserves civil liberties and respects the, the, the Bill of Rights and the rule of law. And all three of those things we all have to be thinking about at the same time uh, and be, be able to be uh, nuanced in how we talk about it. And, and, and again, the, this is the, the very thing that the mainstream media is not capable of doing. He is John Daniel Davidson. He's a senior contributor at The Federalist, Federalist.com, as well as a contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly. John Davidson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Yesterday's briefing, Sunday night's briefing, President Trump was asked about uh, China. Uh, he, like uh, most of the D.C. press corps just a few weeks ago, referring to it as the Chinese virus and uh, an increasing number of op-eds coming out, including from uh, not center-right outlets like Axios, providing the timeline and the culpability for the cover-up on the spread of the coronavirus in its early stages. President Trump having this to say about his uh, erstwhile friend, President Xi. I'm a little upset with China. I'll be honest with you, because... As much as I, I like President Xi and as much as I respect the country and, and admire the country, I have great admiration for the country, what they've done in a short period of time. Of course, our presidents, our previous presidents allowed that to happen. You should say thank you very much to all of them. But uh, they should have told us about this. And I did ask him whether or not we could send some people in. They didn't want that. Out of pride, I think really out of pride. They don't want, they don't want us sending people into China to help them. You know, China's strong country. They have uh, they have their scientists and they have their doctors, very smart, a lot of people. I, you know, but I did discuss that about sending our people in and uh, they didn't really respond. We went again, they didn't respond. If they went in, they would have been able to tell us, give us a much earlier indication. But we had an early indication. That's why I closed out China. Strong country getting weaker by the day. To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by uh, John Pumfret, who is the former Washington Post Bureau, uh, Washington Post Beijing Bureau Chief and author of The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, America and China from 1776 to the present. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, You, um, uh, in a piece in Foreign Affairs, I thought was really interesting. Great historical perspective. Uh, The piece, China Will Miss American Reporters When They're Gone. Uh, sort of an underappreciated story, understandably, because of everything going on with coronavirus, but China expelling uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal reporters the other week. And uh, you, you go back and track how instrumental uh, media coverage of China has been from the beginnings of its industrialization. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, Americans have really been at the center of that story. 
Americans were starting newspapers in China in the 1860s that exposed the Chinese to a vast amount of knowledge that they had no idea about, such as the terms of democracy and economic development and industrialization. Those were, you know, those ideas were brought to China by Western missionaries, but particularly by Americans. And so is this uh, latest move by the Chinese Communist Party, is that a, 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 a signal of the increasing weakness of at least President Xi's position? I don't know whether you could say currently it's his weakness, but I think it's definitely a sign that he's intent on creating a much more closed system. I mean, in the 1990s, China was beginning to open very much to the Western world, and even in the early 2000s. But once he gained power in 2012, he really has taken his country back in time to a much more totalitarian type society. So this combined with the uh, heightened propaganda campaign, now that China, at least reportedly, seems to be on the other side of that flattened curve with respect to COVID-19, they've really ratcheted up the, the propaganda that, uh, that COVID-19 could have been a, an American thing, could have been spread by American military, and uh, getting others like Iran to re- rinse and repeat that. Yeah, you're, you're seeing that happening. But interestingly enough, just yesterday, the Chinese ambassador to the United States issued a statement in which he said, these type of theories are crazy. And so that's a, it, it's actually interesting that there seems to be a split among the Chi- uh, within the Chinese leadership mm. over what to do about this propaganda campaign. You have one side of China kind of ratcheting up this crazy theory, but you have another side within China now making public a statement saying, hey, cool it. Let's not go too overboard. So it's an interesting moment, and that's become now suddenly very public. These type of spats often are done behind the curtain. Now you have this type of spat coming out in public. So does that perhaps indicate there's a struggle for power on the Politburo, that uh, Chinese communist strength may not be in question, but President Xi's specifically could be? There have been a lot of rumors about that, but again, it's such a black box. Yeah. Dan, that I really, I mean, you, we just don't know. I mean, that's one of the kind of tragedies in China right now is that, you know, we know less about what's happening within the Chinese political system now than we did, for example, in the 1980s. Well, to, to that point, then, you know, how much confidence, and I know there's a, 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 apparently WHO representatives on the ground in China and so forth, but how much confidence should we place in the reports coming out of Wuhan and China generally, that they're on the other side of the virus? That's a really, really good question. And now, just just today, we're seeing reports from Wuhan of residents saying they're not allowing my mother, my auntie, my uncle to be tested because the political orders have come down that no new viruses can be, no new cases can be reported. And so what they're doing is that people are sick, but they're not allowing them to get tested. So, again, you're, you're seeing politics taking control of, of, of the health necessities of the people there. Do you think that, I mean, that the, the, there's been a lot of reporting on this in financial circles that, you know, China has got an end game of being the world's reserve currency by 2030 or some such date um, to displace America as the international superpower and I wonder if uh, that is uh, uh, still on track, at least in their minds, or if they're, particularly with respect to the trade impasses they've had with this administration, if they're you know, more focused on trying to get through 
the economic downturn that they've suffered to maintain their legitimacy and they're pushing off their uh, sort of uh, global dreams at this juncture? I think they have to push off their global dreams. And the problem behind the global dreams is that if you want your currency to be the international reserve currency, you have to allow it to move across borders without any controls. And the Chinese are extremely control-obsessed. So while they want their currency to be an international reserve currency, at the end of the day, you have to release, you have to allow the capital to move, and they don't do that. So I think right now they're solely focused on trying to get through this crisis. And even in the long term, I think there's a lot of reluctance in China to release the control over the renminbi and allow it to flow across borders freely. And, and I just don't think they have the, the, the ability or the willingness to release that control. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, that they've never realized the power of their numbers because it's a command control economy uh, where the, the government, the state owns more than 50 percent of the means of production and controls vastly more than that. And so they're, they're really sort of in this trick bag that the Soviet Union was in for most of the 20th century. Their internal contradictions are hard to reconcile. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of problems, and Americans have a tendency to underestimate the challenges the Chinese Communist Party faces. I mean, if you look at their demographics, I mean, they really are getting old at an extremely rapid rate. Mm. Their pollution problems are significant, and they still favor their state-owned enterprises over their very, very entrepreneurial private sector. And so those three problems really create a significant amount of challenges for them to get over the middle-income trap, which they're faced with right now. He is John Pomfret. He's former Washington Post Beijing bureau chief and author of The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, America and China from 1776 to the Present. Also check out his piece at foreignaffairs.com, which I will retweet at Dan Prof Show. China will miss American reporters when they're gone. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Saving lives at any cost. That's uh, been one of the aphorisms just under flatten the curve of the last several weeks as uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus has spread and the response from government at every level has increased. Save lives at any cost. No such thing as an overreaction because everything is about uh, saving lives at any cost. Nothing is an overreaction. Is that right? That's sort of been popularized by CDC's uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, who we'll get to in the next segment in a little bit more detail. But is that right? I don't think so. Rusty Reno has a good piece at firstthings.com, editor of firstthings.com, friend of the show. Um, and he talks about uh, the response, how civil society has been shut down and how it's uh, largely gone without a peep, including the clergy. The docility of religious leaders to the cessation of public worship is stunning. It suggests that they more than half believe the secular proposition, that this is the only world that matters, that proposition. Hmm. Uh, he notes earlier generations understood that institutions anchor our lives. That's why German children went to school throughout World War II, even when their cities were being reduced to rubble. 
That's why the Boy Scouts conducted activities during the Spanish flu pandemic and churches were open. Haven't heard that Spanish flu comparison to today, have you? We've lost this wisdom, writes Reno. In this time of crisis, when our need for these anchors is all the greater, our leaders have deliberately atomized millions of people. Society is a living organism, not a machine that can be stopped and started at our convenience. A person who is hospitalized and must lie in bed loses function rapidly, which is why nurses push patients to get up and walk as soon as possible after sicknesses and operations. The same holds true for societies. If the shutdown continues for too long, we will lose social function. Undoubtedly, shelter in place, the policy uh, of some eight states, some one quarter of the U.S. population at present, that's my parenthetical remark, undoubtedly shelter in place will slow the spread of disease, writes Reno, but at what cost of the body politic? Beware public health officials who advise burning the village in order to get rid of the pestilence. And beware those who pronounce that we should save lives at any cost. That's a dangerous falsehood. One that leads to barbarism and slavery. There are many things more important than physical survival, love, honor, beauty, faith. Anyone who believes that our earthly existence is worth preserving at any cost will accept slavery. As St. Paul teaches, he is already a slave, spiritually speaking. Nothing is an overreaction. Saving life to save a life at any cost is slavery. Uh, An important question when you have stories circulating about those who support suspension of habeas corpus. About uh, the suggestion of nationalizing private industry, which means seizing private property. Advocates for those positions. And interestingly, uh, you know, the uh, save a life at any cost crowd is the same crowd that, generally speaking, supports abortion on demand and supports euthanasia. Hmm. What's the what's the connection? That phrase that uh, Rusty Reno uses, our leaders have deliberately atomized millions of people. Atomized. Libertinism. Men without chests, atomized human beings, untethered from those institutions that anchor our lives, as Reno writes. The defining moments of the coming weeks and months will not be those of sickness and death as much of those as much as those sad realities will anguish us. Modern history shows that epidemics, earthquakes, tsunamis and other natural disasters can take life, often on a vast scale. Yet society goes on pretty much as before. Reno concludes, I worry that this will not be the case in 2020. Imbued with the illusion that if we but muster our collective will, we can master nature and tame death. We risk going mad. Something that Pope Francis uh, warned against in a papal encyclical, actually. We are being seduced into adopting methods of, quote unquote, total war to fight COVID-19. I fear that if we continue down this path, our wartime mentality of mass mobilization will have untold consequences many that we will deeply regret. Wars, not epidemics, turn the wheel of history. Hmm. Indeed, a lot to think about, a lot to think about in this piece. Nothing is an overreaction. Save a life at any cost. Are those really the positions you hold? 
This is the Dan Proc Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and sticking on this topic of uh, our reaction or overreactions, is that a thing? Is that a possibility? Well, uh, the man who has uh, done more than anything during this crisis to suggest that it's not, meaning an overreaction is not possible, Anthony Fauci. Uh, He's been with CDC for a long time, 20 years in this position he's in now as the point person for allergies and infectious diseases. And so uh, he was point man back in 2009 during H1N1. And remember the H1N1 flu, according to final CDC estimates from April 09 to April 10, 61 million cases in the U.S., 274,000 hospitalizations, more than 12,000 U.S. deaths, CDC estimates. Anthony Fauci, of course, made pronouncements during that crisis. Listen to what he had to say about all of the topics in which he's talking today back in 2009. And this is September of 2009. So this is uh, a good uh, five months in to the H1N1 breakout. At that point, there were 10 times as many H1N1 deaths in the U.S. as there have been in March of 2020 with the COVID outbreak. So just again, the scale of the impact of the outbreak and then the pronouncements being made. Compare and contrast how he was discussing this then and what our national response was versus what it is today. Tony Fauci on priorities for testing. Yes, you should get the H1N1. If you're not in one of the five priority groups, then you may need to check with your physician or healthcare provider when it would become available to you. Just to be clear, the five priority groups are pregnant women, people who are the caretakers, parents or what have you, of children less than six months old, healthcare workers, young children and young adults from six months to 24 years old, and individuals from 25 to 64 who have underlying medical conditions that would compromise them and put them at a higher risk for complications. It's interesting. I'm not saying people who uh, believe they may have H1N1, like it has been people who believe they have COVID-19 should get tested. Sounds more like vulnerable populations, vulnerable cohorts that he's identified and probably getting a better sample. Also, just to take a step back, since there's been so much criticism of Trump for being uh, late to the dance on testing and medical supplies and the supplies needed for testing, test kits and so forth, CDC stumbling out of the gate a little bit. Trump's been here three years and he's not an expert, but it's all his blame to accept. Tony Fauci and the experts have been there for, well, he has been there for decades. But all of the medical professionals and medical experts that lived through these previous viral outbreaks and didn't make the recommendations weren't beating the drum for the kind of supplies and infrastructure, uh, testing resources in particular after, I don't know, the last two decades worth of the various viruses that have broken out in the United States to varying levels, most notably H1N1 11 years ago. There's no—we don't— Question them for a lack of foresight. 
strange, isn't it? Tony Fauci on protecting yourself, September of 09, five months into the H1N1 outbreak. First thing, importantly, wash your hands frequently because we know that you can get infected by touching an inanimate object that someone who was infected touched and then touch your nose or your lips or your eyes. Try and stay away as much as possible from rubbing your eyes or your nose or your mouth because that's a very good way to, to transmit the virus. The other thing is to avoid, particularly when there's flu in the community, avoid places where there are people who are sick and coughing and it's a crowded place. Now, that's difficult to do. You can't isolate yourself from the rest of the world for the whole flu season, but use some good judgment in that. Avoid. Use your good judgment. Where's the call for no groups larger than 10 bars and restaurants to be shuttered except for takeout or drive through Tony Fauci on prevention of infecting others. How you can prevent giving it to others is if you're sick, don't go to school. A parent should not send their children to school if they're sick. If you're sick, don't go to work. If you're coughing or sneezing, cover it with a tissue or sneeze or cough into your elbow. Do those kinds of things, as well as washing your own hands, because you may give it to somebody else from what's on your own hand. Where is the uh, inflammatory, or maybe inflammatory is too strong a word, but where is the dire rhetoric? This is going to get worse. Where is the uh, attaboys about uh, for, I mean, this didn't happen, so, but the advocacy essentially for orders to shelter in place, for shutting down states, the economy, the pressure that is being applied to the president to do nationally what uh, eight states have done, including, of course, some of our most populous states. I'm not questioning Tony Fauci's expertise. I just want to make sure we remember its limitations. He stays in his lane. He's not an economist. He's not a political representative of the people. He's an expert in that space. And his he's, you know, singularly focused or he should be on how do we stop the spread of this infectious disease? Great. But that has to be balanced against competing interests like the vitality of our economy and people's livelihoods, which there's a lot of lip service being paid. Uh, but you know, the the uh, ac- action in support of that lip service varies widely, doesn't it? Why the different reaction? Particularly at the point in time I mentioned, September of 09, five months in, the death toll, the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, and not just from Tony Fauci, but from the entire nation. The difference in the reaction, the response, 2009 H1N1 to 2020 and COVID-19. And I get the argument that, well, COVID-19 is more contagious, right? Okay. 60 million cases. Uh, Even in worst case scenarios, we do nothing. I haven't seen too many predictions of 60 million cases, but uh, there are there are some. But we're not doing nothing, are we? The question is, are we doing things that are overreactions to the threat, doing lasting damage that is unnecessary in terms of the trade offs that it.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and we try to provide some value-added information here for uh, people trying to do normal human things in these uh, abnormal times, particularly when it comes to uh, educating your kids with so many families across America with kids at home, not out of school, or not in school, out of school, to the extent that um, school districts or standalone private schools are very different in terms of their communication with families, with students, the homework assignments they're providing, the way they're trying to structure some education in conjunction with the parents while the schools are shuttered. So just some recommendations, and uh, here's a couple of good ones from Carrie McDonald. Uh, She's a homeschooling mom of four. She's the author of the book Unschooled, and so she's got some uh, experience dealing with what uh, a lot of families are dealing with right now that don't have the same experience, so it may be worth uh, taking to heart her advice and counsel. One is avoid replicating school at home. She uh, writes, does Carrie McDonald, while many schools and districts are sending home packets of curriculum materials or shifting to virtual classrooms and assignments, parents should try to avoid the tendency to recreate school at home. Uh, They're likely to find children are able to complete their coursework with much less time than in a typical school day. And we'll learn a great deal from the other experiences, insights that will emerge during the challenging time, including time with parents. So you want to not, you know, schools, a lot of schools and educators I've spoken with, were trying to not add more burdens on the parents. But at the same time, to the extent they're getting assignments, realize that if you help your kids with the assignment, it's not going to be the 830 to 230 school day. They'll probably get it done more quickly, which says something about perhaps what's happening in those uh the brick-and-mortar versions of those institutions. Uh, She also recommends unstructured time, prioritize play and unstructured time. Uh, We all know play is vital for children's healthy development, maybe particularly important as we confront the pandemic. She recounts, does Carrie McDonald, my six-year-old son was playing recently with the figurines from the board game Risk when I overheard him say to them, I can't shake your hand, you might have the coronavirus. So her point is our children are listening to all that's going on and processing it through play, Prioritizing ample play and unstructured time is one important way we as parents can help our children to cope. Creating space for free play without feeling the need to direct or organize their play activities. And for the older children, say high school age children, accustomed to mostly adult-led activities and supervised extracurricular, uh, extracurriculars, allowing them abundant unstructured time over the next several weeks could awaken new interests and goals. I would say that's probably for middle school all the way through high school. And in addition to that, just more resources online, if you haven't already accessed them. Some great recommendations from uh, Lindsey Burke at DailySignal.com. Project Gutenberg, online library of more than 60,000 free, free e-books of the world's great literature. Uh, the Ashbrook Center Teaching American History Project, uh, Brain Pop, the entire Core Knowledge Foundation curriculum. Uh, Space Foundation has partnered with Peanuts to create 10 free lesson plans to uh, encourage kids to dream big dreams about uh, space and and get interested in that. We've talked before about, obviously, Khan Academy, the uh, online courses that Hillsdale College provides on American history and civics. Uh, So many uh, great outlets, and there's a few more to consider. 
Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. The Wall Street Journal opining this morning after the failure of the Senate GOP legislation to get the cloture vote last night. The Senate virus uh, may help the economy stave off a depression. Federal state governments have shut down much of the American economy. Now Washington is moving to lend its balance sheet to compensate for some of the losses it is causing. The foremost goal should be to provide liquidity to prevent defaults and business failures that will cascade into mass layoffs and another depression. We're well beyond the talk of recession now, aren't we? Which is precisely what we've been saying for the last week. But the Wall Street Journal cautions the window for providing liquidity to stressed businesses is closing faster than many realize. Markets face another tumultuous week. Many industries hard-pressed to find financing. REITs with investments in shopping malls that have few customers as people are staying home are one problem to watch. Non-bank financial institutions are another. The most urgent need is for the Treasury to have more money to backstop the Federal Reserve as it stands up one or more facilities to provide liquidity. And the market interventions announced this morning billions of dollars in Treasury purchases by the Fed, securities purchases, as well as mortgage-backed securities to provide some of the liquidity that the Wall Street Journal editorial board is advocating for. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Kevin Bastuga, who's the co-founder of Signature Bank, Chicago's business bank, which focuses on customers right exactly in uh, the path of this financial storm. You're talking about small to mid-size, a lot of family businesses, owner-run businesses, and those small businesses that everybody talks about wanting to intercede on behalf of. Kevin Bastuga, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Wish we were talking about a more happy topic. Tell us, uh, you know, what your clients are saying to you, what you're saying, you know, as you level up to policymakers. These are the recommendations we would have if you want to achieve the goal that everyone seems to have, which is keep businesses afloat and keep employees employed. You know, as we all kind of sat and watched this unfold last week, most of us logically thinking that this would lead to Governor Pritzker's order to stay home for the next two weeks. The landscape, both in terms of the financial effects, the regulatory guidance that we have or have not gotten, a lot of that has been cleared up in a matter of seven days. Dan, you spent some time there and, and you've spent some time in the, in the past days talking about the liquidity in the system. And I think that's the biggest concern for the companies that we bank is my line of credit going to be there in two months when I need it or should I draw it now? Um, tell me what to do kind of thing. I will make the point that this characteristically, and there's, I think Stephen Moore last week said the same thing, doesn't have the same causal sort of nature that 2008 had, meaning that there was a real economic weakness that was propped up by people getting credit that probably shouldn't have gotten credit. Right. This is just a pandemic event that's just going to cause worldwide interruption while it will delay revenue for a lot of these companies and it will cause folks to cut costs and, and do layoffs and, and such, which will in turn slow down consumer spending. Um, this is a recoverable event, and uh, certainly the, the Treasury, the Fed, are stepping up to, to put 
whatever liquidity into the system that they need to. Uh, it seems to me, as we've been arguing for the last week, that you want, rather than SBA loans in this process, I mean, or perhaps in addition to, that you want the government to intercede and cover payroll right now for small businesses, at least in those service sector, hospitality, lodging areas, because otherwise you're going to see millions of people that are out and you're going to have this sort of economic death spiral going on. They can't last 30, 60, 90 days without revenue. No, Dan, you're you're exactly right. I mean, just just this morning before I came on, I, I looked and there were 2 million additional unemployment claims just last week. And so what you described is the scenario that we we all want to avoid, um, and I think what we'll what we'll see coming out this week. Hopefully, this aid package um, gets out of the Senate and gets approved. And I I would hope that that can that includes a large grant package um, for small businesses to to do exactly what you just described. Um, grants meaning they don't have to be paid back, or possibly in the form of forgivable loans that um, if they receive a loan, make payments for a couple of years, and the loan is just forgiven. Um, so in effect, has the same you know, has the same effect as a grant. Um, the hospitality industry, obviously, is the one that's been hit the hardest, the quickest. Um, you know, everybody should be still ordering carry out from their favorite restaurants and try to support those folks that are still trying to make that work. Um, but it's it's going to be a rough couple months. There's no question about it. Uh, with going back again to to your clients, just because I said they're sort of in the sweet spot mm-hmm. in terms of the backbone of our economy. Uh, the uh, what you're what they're what they're reacting to what they're hearing at the federal level, the SBA, maybe 50 billion dollars and then 300, another 250 billion dollars in another form of low interest loans. That's one thing. But they, the argument last night was seemingly in part over executive compensation and how and what that what the caps on that should be and how last, long those caps should last and um, and other such ancillary issues. And I wonder uh, if you're getting any any feedback on the other component parts of what has been proposed by uh, Republicans, I haven't gotten any feedback yet on that. I mean, I think principally there's some there are some some issues there that need to be dealt with. Um, certainly, the president's been outspoken that you know any aid packages that go directly to to, to large companies, he doesn't want stop stock buybacks to be any part of that. And, right. Um, and you know, and I would agree with that. I think. Uh, banking is an industry. Um, it took a long time to get the credibility of the industry back after what happened in 08. And it feels like we're kind of there. And um, if there are rules and stipulations that come along with with these capital aid packages, um, because of the nature of this event, I think we all need to just grin and bear it um, and, and sort of take that recommendation on its face and say, well, it's free capital. And if it comes with stipulations, then so be it. What about uh, the Wall Street Journal's concern, uh, going back to that editorial, about um, REITs and non-bank financial institutions and how wobbly they are? Yeah, that's a sort of a secondary um, secondary finance market, right, where those, those folks have played a pretty crucial role um, in the expansion of the economy here in the last seven or eight years non-traditional lenders. Um, these REITs may come in, you know, both as a, as a senior um, finance position and, a, and as well a subordinated one um, in order to get some of these projects done, which in turn employ a lot of people and, and then, um, you know, increase the hospitality industry. So it's, there's, there's a risk out there um, that some of this money um, 
you know, could get misused or could get misappropriated. I think uh, logically there's an expectation that when you're putting something out on this scale, it will. Um, and, and there's only so much you can sort of legislate on this um, at the front end. But I think, you know, if I were in D.C., I'd be prioritizing speed as opposed to trying to root out contingencies and just leave the government some room there to maneuver um, to make sure that all the funds are being used properly. How did you uh, receive the uh, comments by Peter Navarro and President Trump uh, yet last night about uh, nationalizing businesses? You know, there's been a call from mayors like de Blasio to nationalize businesses, and uh, they've resisted that call. Trump saying, look, um, I mean, he didn't say this, so I'll put it in my words. Basically, we've got cooperation from all these big businesses. We intercede to take over a business or a sector. We have no idea how to run these businesses. Uh, so why would we do through force something we're getting through cooperation? And then Navarro just saying, look, there may be needs to uh, down the road to intercede at some point in the, ch- in, in, in the supply chain, but it's not right now. Right. Um, I was able to watch quite a bit of of coverage yesterday and, and saw, um, you know, Mayor de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, um, with, you know, trying to really indicate a sense of urgency and indicating that the president should enforce the Defense uh, Protection Act immediately and, and, you know, mobilize those businesses. Um, I, I side on, on, on the, the Trump Navarro sort of policy here that, um, companies are stepping up and, and the government is not in, any way, shape, or form capable of nationalizing any industry or nationalizing any sector of any industry that isn't making this equipment right now and telling them how to do it. Um, that is a multi-year kind of process. Um, from a readiness standpoint, there's an argument there over whether maybe we should be um, because this one came on so quick, but I don't think now is the time um, to, you know, making broad strokes that look like nationalization um, where where it comes down to strategically where it's one company that has specific capabilities you know you would hope that those companies if they get a call from the White House or from their state leadership asking them to shift production that they'd be willing to he is Kevin Mastuga co-founder of Signature Bank SignatureBank.Bank Kevin thanks for joining us appreciate it thank you take care Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This op-ed over the weekend at the Federalist, Federalist.com. Houston Loper is the owner of HL Catering in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a uh, open letter to Congress from a small business owner. Here's what my business needs to survive. He's spot on. We talked about it last week. And it'd be nice if the lawyers and permanent politicians in D.C. would listen to people who actually have to meet a bottom line every single day in a way that they do not. Loper writes in his piece, The goal should be to keep as many people employed and businesses running as possible. This payout decision would cause businesses to close, the approach that is being bandied about, and people to be employed and relying on government assistance. If the government helps small businesses first, fewer people 
would be out of work, which is exactly what we were arguing for last week. Forget the $300 billion in low interest loans, particularly to service sector businesses that can't recoup the businesses they're losing. Why would I go in debt to make payroll? Why don't I just furlough or lay off employees and have the uh, state take care of them? But then how do I restart my business? The front end propping up of employment and small businesses by directly interceding to help them cover payroll and keep employees on the payroll is a lot cheaper than what the back end expense would be. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the author and the owner of HL Catering in Raleigh, North Carolina, Houston Loper. Thanks for joining us so much. Appreciate it. Hey, I really appreciate y'all having me on there and give me a voice. I feel like I've been just screaming into the wind, trying to get people to listen, mostly get Congress to listen. It, I woke up last week to hearing the news of the things that Congress was trying to plan to help business from relieving student loan debt to some of the other issues. And those things are are not things that are going to help my business or help other small businesses. We have seven people own our full-time payroll, and then we also have a part-time staff. But our full-time staff and our hourly staff that works every day in the actual business, yes, they are all getting their paycheck next week. My wife and I just, we don't see another way through this if we don't keep our teams intact. You know, I've gotten emails from people around the country, and I was going to try not to get up there's people around the country that are trying to run the business and they had their business just completely stopped by the government two weeks ago we we had this thriving business that was doing amazing they started one by one the next event i canceled the next event i canceled the next one and nobody knows when it's going to stop and you know, if we want to restart what we've got in this country. Here's the thing. I don't think there's an appreciation for just how narrow the window is before businesses yeah. like yours disappear. And I thought, yeah. one of the, in addition to the recommendations you have, which I want to get to, I just want you to explain that. The idea that you can have these businesses go without revenue for weeks or months on end is a fantasy. Yeah, Dan, it's unbelievable. You know, in our business, we can compare for all kinds of different things. We can take out insurance for a tornado or a hurricane or fire or whatever might happen in a business. We can take out key man insurance if somebody has a heart attack. But we can't for this. And we can only save so much in our business and run so lean. I, I learned that from 08 and 09. I went through that and mm. I completely lost the business. I lost everything yeah i've rebuilt and you know and it's taken a long time to be able to do that and it's finally come together it's just amazing that the revenue coming in it doesn't just go to the owner of the business it goes to all the employees it goes to my lending guy that comes in the door that then takes that check back and they pay for their trucks all their other stuff i mean it, it's simple you know it is it's very Simple. I'm not an economist. I don't have a big degree, and I know there's probably somebody out there probably screaming right now, going, "This guy's an idiot." But no, I don't think know. so. I don't think so, and they won't think so when you uh, recount the ideas you put into your piece at thefederalist.com too, which are practical, sensible thoughts about how you can get cash to businesses to keep 
them afloat and to keep yeah. their employees employed. And that's that's the goal here. So you've got the goal right and you got some ideas yeah. in advance of that goal. So share them. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it, again, it's a simple plan. I'm dyslexic. I can barely write. That's one of the great things about America. I've been able to build a business and I can barely read and write, but I can talk. And so when I wrote the letter, it was my wife and I in the kitchen, and we started hammering this letter out because it was the only thing that could make us feel a little bit better. And when we started hammering it out, it's simple. We pay payroll every two weeks. Government already knows what we're paying in payroll because, gosh, they're taking our payroll taxes out right. and making sure they get that cut. And so they already have a record of what we're paying and how many people we're paying. They can take a snapshot from our last payroll and know that. And they can do that for any business. Any business that's operating legally in the way they should. And then from there, we pay unemployment insurance. And so take funds from there and let's use those first. And then from there, fund the rest of it. But then that money goes directly to the employees, in fact, directly to the people that have been let go. Instead of just spending money all over the country, the people, some of these people still have their jobs. Again, my wife is an example of that. She she has a job. So I run the catering company. She has a job with another business, and she still has her job, and she's teleworking and doing all of those things. And so she doesn't need a check. You know, I'm very lucky that she has a, another job. And the other thing on this, too, and you point this out, which is a point that we've made on this show, too, uh, many you, this is your, uh, your from your piece. Many small businesses do not have the bandwidth, team of lawyers, nor time to file for and wait for an SBA loan. Uh, they need the funds as quickly as possible. I, I don't understand um, why that is so difficult to comprehend with respect to these policymakers, because you know, that seems to yeah. me the crux of the issue. All this talk, and we have it at the state level, too, here in Illinois, to SBA loans, and we've created this low-interest loan fund. First of all, why am I going to go into debt to pay payroll, like I said at the outset? Secondly, there's a time crunch here, folks. These businesses go away by the time you get around to paperwork and and the approval and the check being cut, everybody's gone, and you can't recreate it with yes. a flip of a switch. Well, Dan, I mean, you, you said it right there. You, you can't recreate it because you, 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 it's taking time to, to create it in the first place, to, to find these people and to cultivate them and to make them into the, the teams that you have there. You know, I watch the news and I watch them talking about trying to pass stuff and they, you know, they talk about Americans and they talk about citizens. Well, those are the people that are in the business. Our business is made up of people that are different races, different backgrounds, different religions, different everything. It's time for them to act and really put their money where their mouth is on helping real people. Well, uh, Houston, I'm glad you and your wife put uh, your thoughts on paper because this will be there's a lot of small businesses around the country and certainly in Chicago Metro that are thinking the same thing and saying amen as they're listening to you. So we appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Appreciate this piece that you and your wife penned and uh, good luck to you and uh, your uh, your business, your employees down there in Raleigh, North Carolina. Houston Loper, owner of HL Catering in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you all. We're going to rock this town, rock it inside out. We're going to rock this town, make them scream and shout.
The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Joe Biden may be out of sight, but that doesn't mean the ads stop. Team Biden trying to keep Biden's name out there. And we'll get to why that may be more important than just as it relates to Trump in a moment. But uh, fashioning a, a new ad for online distribution, take, trying to take advantage of the tete-a-tete President Trump had with NBC's Peter Alexander at his Friday briefing about uh, a couple of questions that... Uh, or contradictory that President Trump didn't appreciate, comparing it to uh, Biden's pronouncements about what he would do to combat the coronavirus were he president from more than a week ago. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. What do you say to the American people who are confronting this new reality? This is bigger than any one of us. This is calls for a national rallying to everybody move together. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism. You know, I laid out in detail what I would do if were I president today. You go to JoeBiden.com. And the same with NBC and Comcast. I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast. I call it Comcast. First of all, I have to take care of those who, in fact, are exposed or likely to be exposed to the virus. And that means we have to do testing. That's really bad reporting. And you want to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Secondly, Yeah, I don't know that that comparison uh, is terribly persuasive, number one, number two, uh, particularly in the face of these daily briefings like the one Sunday evening. Number two, does politicizing the pandemic boomerang on who's ever doing it? For more on the answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined by Susan Crabtree. She's a senior White House and national political correspondent for Real Clear Politics, realclearpolitics.com. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be with you. So um, uh, the piece that you had at uh, realclearpolitics.com was interesting about uh, the uh, third party groups doing the dirty work of the of the candidates so that their hands aren't on politicizing the pandemic. And it seems to me that sort of speaks to the um, uh, the the fact that uh, politicizing anything associated with this topic is uh, political nitroglycerin. No, I haven't seen anything like this. We all lived through 9-11. No one uh, was running for re-election at that point. Uh, You know, George Bush was just first into his month, into his first term. And so this is really, uh, you know, uncharted territory uh, in terms of how to play this politically. And Joe Biden, um, he had his first briefing. Well, he wasn't a briefing. It was more like a, uh, a speech uh, just now that was live streaming. And he did not hold back. Uh, he said that uh, the president, the lockdowns are a result of the failure of planning and preparation by the White House. And he directly, squarely targeting Trump and blaming him for this. And he said that... Um, Trump says he's a wartime president. Will start acting like one. He wanted. He wants President Trump to use the Defense Production Act, not just invoke it. Uh, but there's a big debate over that, as you know, whether Trump and his uh, other White House officials and Vice President Pence have said the American companies are rising to the occasion, so we don't need to force them to do so. They're already producing masks. They're already converting into ventilators, um, into making ventilators. 
we don't need to threaten or coerce them, they're already rising to the occasion. So it's a it's interesting because the Trump and, uh, political team and outside groups, America First Super PAC, they stopped any type of anti-Joe Biden ad blitz they were planning. They were planning to try to do uh, the same thing that President Obama did to Mitt Romney, as you recall, with a series of really devastating ads from his time at Bain Capital um, and the way he changed those corporations and outsourced jobs. Uh, and that was very, very hard on Mitt Romney coming out of a crowded, uh, well, coming out of the primary season to hit, be hit so hard like that. Uh, they were planning to do the same thing with Joe Biden, but they have totally backed off. Of them. No, no ads are running, but these outside liberal groups are not standing down. I guess they're taking, they're saying, well, what, what do they have to lose? Um, and the Trump administration is dealing with this pandemic. It's really, uh, everybody's on lockdown. People are feeling vulnerable. Why don't we go ahead and exploit that? Mm, well, uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, some statements that Joe Biden made early on in this crisis that may not uh, and that are not aging particularly well. In addition to uh, does, whether or not Joe Biden has to worry about uh, threats still from inside his own party before he gets to Trump. More with Susan Crabtree, senior White House and national political correspondent for RealClearPolitics.com right after this. And she tease you, she'll unease you. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Susan Crabtree. She is the senior White House and national political correspondent for RealClearPolitics.com. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Joe Biden's recent ad and the fact that you have. Uh, uh, third party groups, uh, some third party groups that have stood down during this pandemic and others that are interceding. Uh, Joe Biden criticized President Trump's early decision to close the close the border to uh, Chinese travelers as xenophobic. Uh, that decision, looks, you know, maybe not every decision President Trump made, but that decision looks pretty prescient at this point and has the backing of people like Dr. Tony Fauci. So it's not like Joe Biden doesn't have exposure for some of the things he said during this uh, crisis as well. That's that's right. And I think that's why it was really audacious for him to blame the lockdown on President Trump's failure of planning and preparation, because even Dr. Fauci has said that that uh, decision to stop its lights from China, it played a great role in providing for more time uh, for preparation. So it's very hard. It's easy to play this game of hindsight is 2020, and I would have done everything differently. But when Biden gave his first big speech about on this coronavirus uh, crisis, he invoked the same things that uh, that President Trump, many of the same things that President Trump had said he, he was already doing at that point. Uh, so I think it's it's sort of a dangerous game. You have people uh, fearful right now, and it's. But his base needs him to be out doing something. So we're now going to be having these Biden briefings every day. 
And in those are, it's interesting that the timing was at 10.30 this morning, and then you have a, a White House briefing at 5.30 um, tonight. Now, I, I, going back to President Trump's dealings with Peter Alexander at NBC News, uh, I think that, you know, that was really kind of an unforced error. You don't really want to be engaging in kind of slamming the press at that point. But I don't think that the ads uh, that you you ran on just now are accurately portraying that encounter. There was uh, a leading question yes. that got Trump angry up and before he said, uh, are you what do you say to president uh, to the American people who are scared? There was this uh, comment that really yeah. got under Trump's about him being too impulsive and his impulse was to be po- uh, for positive spin and that's what set Trump off not not the uh, what do you say to Americans who are scared no exactly right and I'm glad you provided that additional context because yes it was it was aren't you giving Americans false hope and then he answers and then it was what do you say to Americans who are scared so it's like aren't you giving them false hope now I want you to give them hope um, so, you know a little right. a little bit of a gotcha game I'd say Yes, and there was all of this, uh, uh, all a lot of the reporters last week, including Jake Tapper at CNN, were slamming Trump for talking about uh, the malaria drug, the hydrochloroquine, and uh, for singing its hopeful praises. He wasn't saying that you should run out and the, the FDA should um, fast track its approval as much as possible. He was trying to say there was already at that point the FDA on Thursday had approved it for compassionate use. And we have stories now emerging of people who have taken it. Yes. Their doctors gave it to them. They felt like they were on their deathbed, and they gave it to them, and it actually helped them recover. And they're crediting this compassionate use for uh, and these drugs that uh, Trump was touting for their full recovery. Right. And, so, and, and there was a, there was a, and this this bothered me with respect to Sunday night's briefing. Um, there were no follow-up questions about the antiviral therapies that could be applicable here, uh, the the trials that he mentioned that are starting tomorrow, and then also the uh, remdesivir, which uh, is given a, a, basically all the credit for curing these two patients in Washington State who were severely ill from COVID-19. And I wanted to follow up to find out, you know, where is that at in clinical trials for possible application beyond compassionate use waivers? Yes, I mean, that's something I'm going to be looking into this week uh, and talking, hopefully talking to Bayer uh, Pharma, who is responsible for the hydrochloroquine, trying to get that uh, yeah. in, into circulation and FDA approved for regular use. But for right now, the compassionate use question it got lost last week. I felt like in the mix and, and rep- uh, reporters are so eager to slam President Trump for trying to be hopeful about something. And I thought of you know, the Jimmy Carter issue back in the late 70s when he was criticized for the doom and gloom and the Malay speech and telling people to put on a sweater and turn down their thermostat when dealing with the energy crisis. Right. Uh, if, if the president is not hopeful at all, then he's sending signals to the market and to the American people that, that this is not, who knows when this is going to end and we are very, very jittery right now as a nation. We're all hunkered down, and we're looking for leadership and for some signs of hope. So why not provide them in a responsible way? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not mindless happy talk, but you can be optimistic and 
but but also measured. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I did want to ask you um, one one question too, just about and maybe you'll. Uh, this is just fantasy politics. Uh, you know, something to do <laughs> during our boredom here is this idea that uh, Joe Biden he needs to start doing these daily briefings that you referenced because uh, out of sight, out of mind. And, hey, if you keep Bernie Sanders, if Bernie Sanders stays in the race or there's impetus to keep him in the race and Joe Biden doesn't get to majority of delegates, then maybe we can get a better candidate who's just raised his profile significantly in perhaps a largely positive way at the convention on a second ballot, like, say, an Andrew Cuomo. Absolutely. I think that's a really big fear for the Biden camp right now. Um, that obviously Andrew Cuomo is much younger. He has shown great leadership Right now, you do. One thing I did note was you have uh, Andrew Cuomo. Um, these ads that, that, that the outside groups are running, one of the outside groups, by the way, is uh, PACRONIM, which was responsible, it's affiliated with ACRONIM, which is responsible for the Iowa app meltdown. So mm. no one seems to be focused on that. Yeah. Uh, I guess they, we've covered quite a, uh, quite a bit since then, and it's okay now for them to be running these ads. In terms of Andrew Cuomo has said some very good things about Trump's leadership after they had a public spat on Twitter, and those are going to be made for TV commercials after um, this crisis has a little bit subsided. As we head into the late summer, you can expect the Trump campaign will use that, and even Ilan Omar has said some good things about uh, Trump and the way he's handled this. So there's going to be, um, when the time is right, when we get when the Trump campaign gets back to their political voting there, you can expect those ads um, to be made too. So Andrew Cuomo, yes, I think that it is a big fear right now. I think uh, the Democratic Party is turning their eyes uh, away from the Biden camp uh, right now, and they're looking for someone a little bit more viable and stronger. Interesting. Susan Crabtree, Senior White House and National Political Correspondent for RealClearPolitics.com. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insight. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And to close the show, as long as we keep getting great artists to uh, provide offerings to help us get through COVID-19... Last week, it was the Italian tenor Mauricio Marchini, and it was Andrew Lloyd Webber, and it was Yo-Yo Ma. And uh, over the weekend, we got uh, the Jewish Elvis, Neil Diamond, with a uh, rendition, edited version of uh, Sweet Caroline. Hi, everybody. This is Neil Diamond, and I know we're going through a rough time right now, but I love you. And I think maybe if we sing together, well, we'll just feel a little bit better. Give it a try, okay? Where it began, I can't begin to know it. But then I know it's growing strong. Wasn't the spring, and spring became the summer. Hands. Reaching out, don't touch me, 
get it uh this is a good little offering from neil diamond appreciate that uh and of course you have a uh, great uh aspiring uh weird al yankovics out there like chris mann doing uh his version of the knacks my sharona you know where this is going i need toilet paper toilet paper toilet paper i'm out of toilet paper it's my sharona i need Organic? Oh no, all GMO. Jesus Christ, now I panic. I'll die. That is Weird Al Yankovic quality, actually. Uh, good for Chris Mann. And uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't close out the closeout with a tribute to the gambler, Kenny Rogers, passing away uh, this weekend at the age of 81. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Thank you for joining us on the Dan Prop Show. Please come back tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.